This morning's scripture reading will be from the 47th Psalm. If you're using a Bible from the back, that is on page 472, assuming I remembered the number from my walk up here. Uh, Psalm 47, for the music director by the Korahites, a psalm. All you nations, clap your hands, shout out to God in celebration. For the sovereign Lord is all-inspiring. He is the great king who rules the whole earth. He subdued nations beneath us and countries under our feet. He picked out for us a special land to be a source of pride for Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has ascended his throne amid loud shouts. The Lord has ascended his throne amid the blaring of ram's horns. Sing to God, sing, sing to our king, sing. For God is king of the whole earth. Sing a well-written song. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble along with the people of the God of Abraham. For God has authority over the rulers of the earth. He is highly exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. We're going to continue our series this morning on worship. We've been looking the last couple of weeks at various tensions that exist in the Bible regarding worship. We've looked at God's greatness and God's nearness. And last week we looked at our heads and our hearts. And this week we're going to talk about the tension of internal worship and external worship. And a lot of questions come to mind when we think about a topic like this because it deals with the place of physical expressiveness in public worship. So the questions come, like how can we pursue genuine affection for God without moving into some sort of emotional display? Or does God care what we do with our bodies in worship? And if so, if he does care about those things, how should we respond to those things? So we're going to talk about the tension between the internal experience that we're to have in worship and also the external expression that is to be characteristic of genuine internal experience. So that's where we're going this morning. So let me lead us in prayer before we dive in to this subject. Father, we pause to acknowledge you in all of our ways. You've called us to do that. So we want to acknowledge you as we come to this time in your word together. We ask that you would help the meditations, meditation of all of our hearts, and especially the words of my mouth, to be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's where we're going to go. We're going to talk about internal experience first, and then we're going to move into physical expression, and then I'm going to try to wrap it all up with some practical pastoral application near the end of the sermon. So this morning, first of all, internal experience. Now, just to be clear, God has always stressed in Scripture the importance of worship being an internal reality first. In the Old Testament, again and again, God stated that he didn't merely want his people to have circumcised foreskins. He wanted them to have circumcised hearts. He didn't just want them to have bleeding and burning sacrifices. He wanted a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He wanted more than temple attendance. He wanted to reign in his people's lives as their only majestic king and sovereign. He wanted more than torn robes and ashy heads. 
He wanted torn hearts and genuine repentance. He wanted more than washed bodies. He wanted clean hearts. So the Bible is constantly stressing throughout the Old Testament and into the New, this need for worship to move beyond external things, outward things to inward reality, beyond externals to internals, beyond the the flesh to the spirit. But all that being said, it doesn't negate the fact that the New Testament has a radical intensification toward the internal reality of worship. There's a stunning indifference in the New Testament, if you've read it, There's a stunning indifference to a lot of outward forms and places regarding worship and a intensification of what is happening in the inward spiritual experience that has no bounds. A couple of texts might help us with that whole idea. As we read these, think about that the whole thrust is being taken off of ceremony and seasons and places and forms and being placed on an inward spiritual experience. It's being shifted to what's happening in terms of ceremony and season and place to what's happening in the heart of the worshiper. For instance, Mark 11, verse 17, where Jesus cleans out the temple. Remember, he comes upon the temple. He sees all sorts of marketplace activity going on in it. And he cleans it out and he reminds the people that the temple was originally to be a house of prayer for all nations. So when he wove a whip and he drove out the money changers, the reason he gives is not for the sake of proper sacrifices, but for the sake of prayer. In other words, he's focusing attention away from the outward Jewish ceremonies and things that were going on to the heart of personal communion with God for all peoples that his temple was to be. So it's a focus on prayer in the heart of the worshiper rather than all these external ceremonies that no doubt the money changers were selling legitimately to offer sacrifices to God. But it was becoming a place of commerce rather than a place of communion. And that bothered Jesus. Matthew twelve six. remember when Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here? Referring to himself. And in John 2, 9, he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And he reminded the people that the temple was not just some physical reality, but it was that Jesus had come to fulfill what all that temple worship represented. So he took away the physical temple and he places himself in the center and says, I am that temple. Something greater than this physical temple is here. I'm here. Jesus Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Jesus is identifying himself as the true temple of God. He's fulfilling everything the old covenant temples stood for, especially the place where believers meet God. So here again, we have Jesus diverting our attention away from worship as some sort of localized outward thing to being a personal spiritual experience with himself at the center. He's saying worship doesn't need a building. It doesn't need a priesthood. It doesn't need sacrifices. It needs a risen savior. John four, perhaps is the, is the most key text in this regard where the old Testament word for worship is used, but it didn't fit the reality of the worship that Jesus was bringing. When the woman at the well said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you say, 
You people say, you Jews say, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe in me, believe me, sorry, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. He has this loosening of worship on this localized idea of a mountain, this mountain or that mountain. Place is not the issue. He goes on, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here's the key sentence. True worship, which was anticipated for the age to come, has arrived. The hour is coming and is now here, Jesus says. And what marks this true worship is that that is broken into the present time from the glorious age to come is that it's not bound by a localized place or an outward form. Instead of being on this mountain or in Jerusalem, Jesus says it's to be in spirit and in truth. So what Jesus seems to be doing here is he's stripping the idea of worship being a primarily external thing. Not that it will be wrong to worship to be in a place. Of course, it can't exist in anywhere but a place. But the place is not the issue. While outward forms and tradition can certainly have their place, we can't be divorced from outward forms. We got, we got things, we do certain things in worship. There are certain things that accompany worship. Nevertheless, those aren't the primary or to be, to, to be the thing that most preoccupies our thinking. He's explicit about saying that what is central to what makes worship worship is that it's in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean for worship? Well, I think it means that there is an internal tension and, and, and a value to recognizing the internal experience of worship. External expression in worship is not the primary issue when it comes to fellowshipping with other Christians. What's going on in our hearts is more important than what's going on with our bodies. Because you can have one without the other. You can have you can have bodily expression which the Jews had in droves but not internal reality. And that sort of stuff nauseates God. But nevertheless, I'm going to argue that you can't have internal experience, genuine internal experience, without some measure of physical expression. But, what, but don't misunderstand me. What's going on in our hearts is more important than what's going on with our bodies. Whether or not we're obeying God in our daily lives, walking with Jesus Christ in repentance and faith daily, Seeking him, repenting before him, exercising faith in him, seeking to be on mission with him. That matters far, far more than any particular physical expression you might have when we gather in a, in a church service. So then, does that mean that there is no place for external expressiveness in corporate worship? Well, I'm going to argue no. No. That does not mean that there is no place for external expressiveness. It just means that the internal reality must be there in in accompaniment with the external expression. Otherwise, it's not genuine worship. So I want to talk about external expression now under sort of three mini headings to kind of unpack this. I want to talk about the scriptural language for worship. And then I want to look at 
the New Testament examples and some biblical commands. So we're talking about external expression in worship here, and I want to I talk about the biblical evidence for this idea. First of all, let's, let's think together about the scriptural language that's used regarding worship. The Greek and Hebrew words for worship, often translated worship, both refer to a physical action. My point is, is that in the Bible, oftentimes worship is accompanied by physical expression. We see it over and over again. It's not exclusive. There are, there are examples in scripture where worship is used, the word worship is used, and there's no physical um, component there that's obvious in the text. But over and over again, as you see worship happening in scripture or the word worship used, it's often used in conjunction with other words that illustrate physical action going on as they are worshiping. David G. Peterson writes this, quote, the words most commonly translated worship in scripture convey the notion of homage. And in general use, this term expressed the custom of bowing down or casting oneself to the ground as a gesture of respect to someone. As a response to some revelation of God, homage was expressed to God by individuals and by groups of believers together, end quote. So you get this idea, worship is associated with homage, which is associated with a physical action of bowing down or bending over or showing respect, a gesture of respect to someone. Let's look at just a couple of texts. Homage is sometimes expressed individually, like in Genesis 24. Abraham has sent his servant to go find a wife for Isaac among his people. And you remember the story. The servant rolls up on the scene, spots Rebecca. Begins to pray, Lord, confirm your word to your servant. If this woman is the one come out to draw water from the well, I know that she's the one I'll ask. These. So he's, he's talking to God. God answers his request, makes it clear that Rebecca is the woman. And what is the servant's response? Genesis 24, 26 and 27. The man bowed down and worshiped the Lord. There was a physical expression of his gratefulness to God for answering his prayer. Now, that was a very good time. That was a great example. That was something that God did for him that was wonderful. But we also see it in Job's life. When Job receives the devastating news of his whole family practically being wiped out. And Job 1, 20 and 21 says that he bowed down and worshipped. It's this whole idea of homage. We see it also expressed corporately in Exodus four thirty one. When the Israelites heard that the Lord was concerned about them, this is before the Exodus. Moses is on the way. God has heard their prayer. He's heard their misery. What is their response? They bowed down and worshiped, Exodus 4.31. But lest we just think this happens in some strange field between Abraham, Isaac, and Rebekah, or it happens in some oppressive Egyptian system, Remember that Psalm 95, in the context of corporate worship, uses this exact phrase. Psalm 95, 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Peterson again. Quote, bending over as a gesture of homage became associated with the public praise of Israel. In such context, it could be a formal way of expressing devotion to or dependence on God. 
But notice how he emphasizes the internal reality that needs to be placed here. He says, quote, the gesture was only meaningful if people recognized God's majesty and holiness and desired to serve him as their king, end quote. So connecting the two, we see this either or, not both and. Sorry, we see both and, not either or. We see sometimes the words for worship being stressed, the terminology that's used, being stressed to identify movement of the body. For instance, Exodus 34.10, Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped. But other times... Worship could be expressed without necessarily a physical component. For instance, Exodus 33.10, they all stood and worshiped. So the point is, is that often the scriptural language for worship contains with it physical expressive components. That's my main, that's my first argument. Second, New Testament examples. It might be easy to say, well, wasn't that just, that's Israel. That's old covenant. That's That's cultural. Well, let's come to the New Testament then and see how people respond to Jesus. They respond to him this way at the beginning of his life. They responding to him this way now as he's in heaven and we will respond to him one day. And also the church responds to it this way. First of all, turn with me if you would, and we're going to turn to these three texts together. Matthew 2.11. Matthew 2.11. Please hold your finger in Psalm 47. We'll be coming back there a little bit later. But Matthew 2.11 first. This is, of course, the narrative of Christ's birth. And we notice how people respond to him as they meet with him, specifically the wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, verse 10. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. So you get the idea. They come up. They recognize that that sort of allegiance, that sort of action is only to be reserved for the Lord God. And they've seen the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they fall down before him. And worship. Let's see the church. 1 Corinthians 14. Paul, of course, is writing to the church in Corinth, and they have all kinds of problems going on in their corporate worship regarding order and, and all those things and, and the spiritual gifts being used in such a way as that's not edifying to the corporate gathering. And he talks about what's going to happen while you're engaging in all of this when an unbeliever comes in among you. And um, he stresses that it's to be in, in a service in which the unbeliever could find intelligible. And verse 24 says, but if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That is a corporate worship context. You have people falling on, and obviously they wouldn't have seen that. That unbeliever wouldn't have seen that as unique. Likely it was happening among the people of God. And he's joining them in their worship of God. 
testifying, God is really among this people. And he falls down on his face and worships. So we see it in the New Testament church as well. We also see it in the book of Revelation, where we as believers are all headed, this glorious vision of Christ. Revelation 1.17, John sees this vision of the exalted King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus. And he says in Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. So we get this idea in the New Testament of people falling before Christ, bowing down, showing homage, worshiping. And so my argument is that is a consistent thing. It's not an old, just an Old Testament thing. It's a, it's a consistent reality of this physical expressiveness to Christ in worship. We also have biblical commands, though. We have the biblical command to sing. Singing is a form of physical expression in worship. Psalm 47, 6, Colossians 3, 16 reminds us that we are to sing. We are to kneel or we're given, we're given that as an example. Psalm 95, 6, lifting our hands to bless. Psalm 134, verse 2. New Testament example, lifting your hands in prayer. 1 Timothy 2, 8. Bowing, Psalm 95, 6. Clapping, Psalm 47, 1. Shouting, Psalm 33, 1. Playing instruments, Psalm 150, verses 3 through 5. Dancing, Psalm 149, 3. Standing in awe, Psalm 33, 8. My point in quoting all of those is that biblical praise is normally expressed, spoken, and observable. This is why David says, My heart is steadfast, O God. Psalm 108, verse 1. I will sing and make melody to the Lord with all my being. And since worship engages the whole being, Kent Hughes reminds us, quote, so much then for those whose worship is neatly measured and conveniently interior, who references God in scholastic Latinate categories, but is embarrassed when others become enthusiastic about God's love, end quote. So the question then becomes, are these sorts of commands to be obeyed at all times by all of God's people? Well, It suggests three possibilities, I think, when we're dealing with commands for corporate worship from the Old Testament. Here are the three possibilities when we read commands in the Psalms specifically about external expression, clapping, shouting, dancing, singing, kneeling, bowing down. One, here's one possibility. They all point forward to fulfillment in Christ and therefore no longer apply. They're to be treated as ceremonial law. That's one possibility. All of it is ceremonial law. It's like animal sacrifices. It's fulfilled in Christ. A second is that it's a cultural and local practice that's given to ethnic Israel, which does not govern us directly and is merely helpful by way of, quote, general equity. That is, it teaches us general principles, but it's not to be set forward as any sort of model. Or verse 3 These are principles that endure in their validity and are universal to all of God's people and should be obeyed. Those are our three choices. Well, let's look at Psalm 47 and see which one of those washes the best in this text. Psalm 47, verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. 
For the Lord, the most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Verse six, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. Now the context is clearly corporate worship. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master. It would have been a psalm that was sung on the, by, by the Israelites in corporate worship. And notice that the com- command to clap your hands, one form of external expression, not the only one, and shouting, verse 1b, are also given as external expression. But notice the command is not given to Israel alone. It's, com- it's a command that's given to all peoples. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. So thinking of this as a merely cultural or uniquely Israeli practice would be foreign to the passage, considering that the goal is that the the praise of God would be extended. This is a missional psalm. The goal is that the praise of God would be extended to all the earth and that all all the earth would celebrate the Lord the way Israel is celebrating the Lord. So... This idea of, it, of shouting to God with loud songs of joy and, cla- and, and rejoicing for the Lord, the most high is to be feared, a great king of all the earth. And notice the reason that is given for why this external expression is fitting is because of who God is, not who Israel is. For the Lord, verse 2, the most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And then another form of external expression, verse 6, singing praises. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. He reigns over the nations, verse 8. So this is a missional psalm. It's meant to celebrate the greatness, the glory of the king of Israel, who is, to be the, who is the king of all the earth. And this most high is to be feared. And that is the reason, because God is great. So I've often said to many, when God stops being great, we can stop expressing ourselves like he's great. Because that's the point of the psalm, that there's this physical expressive component that is necessitated in worship by virtue of God's glory and greatness. Which is why I get really bogged down about the discussions about commands and What's right and what's wrong and what's fitting and what's not fitting? Perhaps a better question is this. Just throw it out there. Do our minds, hearts, and bodies reflect the overall biblical model for how we are to respond to the greatness and goodness of God? That's the question to ask. Just ask that of yourself. Does my mind, my heart, notice I focused on internal reality first. All right. Do our, my mind, my heart, and my body reflect the overall biblical model for how we're to respond to the greatness and goodness of God? So that's external expression. We looked at the scriptural language, the New Testament examples, and then the biblical commands in the Psalms. So let me move into some practical application now to conclude. I want to talk about, just briefly, the benefits of external expression for internal experience. I want to connect those two. That's a tension that I want us to appreciate. I want to connect the benefits of external expression for inter- for heightening and intensifying internal experience. And then I want to talk about the limitations of external expression and the hindrances to external expression. 
All right. So try to get practical here. All right. The benefits of external expression. I think nobody would doubt that God is worthy and is seen as great and glorious when people are willing to clap their hands for him, shout over him, dance before him, celebrate him. No one would doubt that that magnifies God. It shows his worth. It shows his value. I mean, if football teams or basketball teams get more of that from us than God does, we got a serious problem. A serious problem. I mean, you'll jump out of your chair. Harrison brother hits a three-point shot, won't you? At the last minute. Woo! And that's not wrong. It just shows we're all wired that way. And I'm not saying that you should woo and holler all the time in corporate worship. I'm just saying, get my point. You show, you show how much UK basketball has gripped your heart. I mean, I've been in enough football games and basketball games to know that's corporate worship going on there. I see people with their hands up. I see people amening each other, like grabbing each other. Woo! Yeah! I mean, it's corporate. And I felt weird. I was like, oh. And they were trying to get me converted too. You see that? It's awesome. And they almost cast me out of the church if I didn't get into it enough. I mean, my brother questions my salvation because I'm not as devoted to the Cardinals as he is. I know I'm vegan that, but I'm from Louisville, okay? But I'm sitting there watching this game and I'm seeing, I'm seeing evangelism taking place. I mean, they're singing the songs on the pilgrimage, walking through the tunnel. I mean, it's put Psalms to shame. They're on their way to Jerusalem. I mean, and I'm not saying, like, look, that's not, just because they're doing that doesn't make them all idolaters. All right? You can get into your team. You can love your team. You can follow your team. You check your stats on your team, all that stuff. Okay? But I'm just saying, there is, there is, we are hardwired to join a community in celebration of something. And that's why people won't go out and buy a record or buy an album anymore, but they'll dang sure go to a concert. And they'll, they'll watch their team play and they'll get behind a cause and walk for it or march for it or run a 5K for it or a 1K or a half marathon. They'll do something to, to, to celebrate. I'm getting a little off course here. I digress. But let me get back to the benefits of external expression. All right? And, and we, we could talk about how, it's, how it magnifies God, how it, we follow a scriptural example, or how we encourage each other when we do it. But I want to talk about the encouragement it gives for our own hearts. Here's what I'm saying is that even when my heart isn't affected by what I'm singing, expressing my devotion to God physically can stir up affection in my heart. I wonder if you've experienced that. If not, I'll encourage you to try it. If you're feeling dead and not 
and lethargic and that you're not able to engage in worship and you feel like this song's just running off my lips. It's not engaging my heart or, or I'm listening to this sermon or, or, this, or I'm participating in this prayer or I'm giving, but I'm not giving cheerfully. I mean, all the components of worship, not just singing, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking primarily singing here. If your heart's just really not engaged, try saying, Lord, I'm sorry. Help me. Just some form of physical expression. Bow your head. Pray. And see what the Lord will do. And you might say, well, that's hypocritical. That's hypocrisy. Because it's expressing honor toward God physically that you don't feel anything in your heart. Let me tell you, that's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when we act a certain way to give others a false impression of our spirituality. That's hypocrisy. Or they say, well, that's just emotionalism. You're, you know, you're kind of shortcut your mind. You're just stirring up your affections. You're not engaging your mind. No, it's not emotionalism. Emotionalism is what takes place when we aren't seeking to engage our minds in God's truth. The whole point is you're trying to engage. That's the point. So don't let hypocrisy or emotionalism dictate whether or not you're willing to externally express something that may not in that moment be occurring in your heart, but in hopes that through that external expression, something would be happening in your heart. John Calvin would encourage you along those lines. You want to hear from him? Let's hear from him. Here's Calvin. The inward attitude certainly holds first place, but outward signs, kneeling, uncovering the head, lifting up the hands have a twofold use. The first is that we may employ all our members for the glory and worship of God. Calvin believed in that stuff. Secondly, that we are, so to speak, jolted out of our laziness by his help. There is also a third use in solemn and public prayer and worship, because in this way the sons of God profess their devotion and they inflame each other with reverence for God. But just as the lifting up of the hands is a symbol of confidence and longing, so in order to show our humility, we fall down on our knees. End quote. So this sort of physical expressiveness, this sort of engaging of our entire body is meant to serve the internal reality. Calvin again says, the glory of God ought in a measure to shine in the several parts of our bodies, both through singing and through speaking. So singing calls, this is, that's, that's the end of Calvin's quote, but singing calls a congregation to engage our vocal cords, to engage our tongues, to engage our diaphragms, to engage our lungs. And Calvin writes that bodily expressions, quote, are exercises whereby we try to rise to a greater reverence for God. They are exercises whereby we try to raise to a greater reverence for God. There's Captain Reformation, baby. Saying stuff like that. I mean, we don't want to think of Calvin as a stoic. He was not a stoic. He was a man of flame. So that's the benefits. I'm talking about the in, in, you say my heart's not engaged in worship the way it needs to be. Well, maybe it's because you're not physically doing anything. 
I would start with singing. If you don't sing, that's a problem. So start singing loudly out and then pray and seek the Lord and express yourself physically, whether it's through a raising of a hand, saying amen at the end of a song or wherever other way the Lord might lead you. I want you to feel the freedom to do that and encouragement to do that. Now let's talk about the limitations of external expression because there are some limitations to it. First of all, and I've, I've already said this, but I just want to underscore it again, that external expression does not ensure that worship is taking place in the heart, but it can certainly aid it. All right. We remember Matthew five, or sorry, Matthew 15 verses eight and nine, which pastor Jonathan quoted last week. These people honor me with their lips. We could also say their raised hands and their loud shouts, but their hearts are far from me. So only God knows if we are truly worshiping him. Christians can exhibit little physical expression on Sundays and have a profound love for the savior, a deeply godly life and a deep, deep knowledge of scripture. We don't judge each other on the basis of external expression or not. You can't, you can't measure spirituality by that. You just can't. But neither should we suspect things either. So just, just recognize that. Also, it can be self-deceiving. A genuine response to God can't be measured by raised hands, dancing feet, and loud shouts. And I don't primarily speak this to our own context. I know this is not our bent church. We're not in the danger of being self-deceived, but it is a larger church issue beyond our own context. That external expressiveness can, of course, be self-deceiving. Dancing feet, raised hands, loud shouts do not necessarily indicate internal reality. Although raised hands can express dependence, gratefulness, or celebration, God once told Israel, remember in Isaiah 115, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Or Amos 5, 23 and 24. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. He said, you want to know what I want? I want you people to be concerned about some justice and righteousness. That's what I want you to be concerned about. Not how, not how loud you can make your songs or how many instruments you can play. But there's also a legitimate concern for others that's to be present. I mean, you don't want to be whacking somebody in the face when you're raising a hand. Okay? You don't want to be bending over and something else coming out that shouldn't be coming out. To, and the, per, the row behind you not appreciating that very much. Now, I'm joking, okay? But I'm talking about that, that there is a place for legitimate concern. This is not your private worship time. This is corporate worship, okay? That means you need to take into account the body that you're surrounded by, the believers you're surrounded by. And don't use that as an excuse, though, because I know we can, we can rationalize stuff and, and all that, all that already long. Well, uh, you know, I'm a little too close now, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to shout. I might, you know, they might, or I'm not going to say amen too loud because that might disturb somebody in front of me. You know, we can do all that stuff. 
But I'm saying that concern for others is legitimate. Tim Keller writes, we should neither hide nor over-control our feelings. Get that. We should neither hide nor over-control our feelings behind a reserved, formal, or deadpanned exterior. But second, we should not lack self-control so as to think only for ourselves and leave the congregation behind. It should be clear to others that we have strong emotions, but that when we let our personal emotions go too far, we at best forget the corporate aspect of worship and are absorbed in our own response to God, end quote. So again, I don't think that's a particular challenge for us right now in, in this season, but it is something I wanted to be fair to the whole subject, so that's why I include it. Bob Coughlin writes, expressiveness has its limitations. Our highest priority when we gather with the church is not our own personal expressiveness, but the privilege of serving other people. Our expressions of praise and worship in a meeting should be appropriate to our context, but no one should question whether or not we are moved by God whose glory we're seeking to exalt. End quote. So that's, those are some of the limitations of external expression. Let me close with some hindrances to external expression. Sometimes the only hindrance is a lack of biblical instruction. Some of you may just not even know. You may not have known. You may not have even thought about it. You may not have thought like, wow, okay, so God encourages that. He encourages physical expression. He, it's modeled in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's like in the church gathered. It's like that's, that's, and so just hearing this sermon might have been all you need. Like I'm convinced. I got it. Okay. Well, that's great. But there are other things that may be present as, as, uh, by way of hindrance. For example, theological concerns or the fear of man. All right, so I want to take each of those in turn. First of all, fear of man. Now, only you know your own heart in this regard. But I want to try to ask you some questions um, that where maybe you can determine whether or not the fear of man is present. And by the fear of man, I mean, what will people think about me? What will my spouse or my kids or, my, or, my, or the other people around me think about me if I were to express myself physically in worship in some way, whether through raising a hand or shouting or bowing down or getting on my knees or praying? Well, let me ask you this question. Are you convicted in a certain area and you've yet to follow through on it? You're convinced of it. You're convinced that God would, would have you express yourself in that way, but you're not, you're not following through on it. That may be sign of a fear of man. Maybe you're more mindful of the eyes of others than the eyes of God. I know I've been there. I've thought about the eyes of other people more than the eyes of, of God. And, and again, we should have mindful, a mindfulness for the eyes of others. But, I, but I'll, I'll venture to guess that most of you would be more encouraged. I mean, how many times have you in a, in a corporate worship service, and maybe this isn't you, okay? This is just me speaking. But my heart has been disengaged. I've sought to engage my body with worship, but then, and, and, and there, it doesn't seem to be, but then I'll, there doesn't seem to be anything happening or I'm not, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm engaged with God at the moment, but I'll look over at a brother and sister with tears coming down their face and they could just be standing there or they could have a hand up or whatever. And immediately my heart is broken. That's what I'm talking about. Like, it's not, not so much, that's being mindful of the eyes. We should be looking at each other and we should be encouraging each other in our worship. Our, our, our expressiveness, our, the volume, our engagement in worship should be an encouragement to the body to engage. We must not think about how little I can get away with 
we must think about how worthy God is. You don't measure your faithfulness by how close you can get to the edge, right? You measure your faithfulness by thinking about how worthy God is. Think about this quote from Mark Buchanan. This is a really gripping one. He says, God is not the safekeeper of our reputations. God is not some priggish domestic deity, a heavenly mismanners, intent on prescribing the etiquette that maintains polite society, aghast by any outbursts of fervor. And our role on this earth, be it prophet, king, priest, or homemaker, is not to keep ourselves from embarrassment. We must come before the king, dignified or undignified, in the presence of the elite or in the company of slave girls and worship with all our might. He said, God's not a safekeeper of our reputation. He's not some priggish domestic deity, a heavenly mismanners intent on prescribing the etiquette that maintains polite society, aghast at any outbursts of fervor. No, he wants us to worship him with all our might. And that's what we see over and over again in scripture. But perhaps there's some theological concerns here. So let me ask you these questions. Assuming that God wants us to exalt him with our bodies, what physical expressions of praise in scripture do you think are appropriate in corporate worship? And how do you distinguish those? What are what's appropriate and what's not? What's your criteria? Must expressiveness always be natural or can it be learned? Say, I don't do it because it's not natural. Well, can you learn it? Is singing appropriate for worshiping God? If so, why not shouting? Are there any physical expressions of worship modeled or commanded in the Bible that you've never engaged in? And if so, why not? So let me conclude. We worship God, brothers and sisters, because of who God is. God is infinitely worthy of our shouts, our smiles, our cheers, our applause, our lifted hands, our delight. He's worthy because of who he is. The infinite, almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent, good, gracious, glorious, holy, just, righteous, full of mercy, God. There is no one like him. He outshines a million suns and makes the angels tremble. But we also worship God because of what he has done for us. He has saved us. He has forgiven us. He's redeemed us. He's adopted us. He's empowered us. He's lifted us from the pit. He's seated us with Christ. He's storing up an eternal inheritance for us. No one has done more for us. No one has been kinder to us. No one is more worthy of our thanks and gratitude. To stand in stoic silence before our God is an atrocity of gigantic proportions. No one has done more for you. No one has been kinder to you. No one will see you safely to your eternal home and wrap you in Christ's righteousness forever and ever adopted into his family. Gloriously empowered for every trial that you have. Anytime you come in here, you know all things work together for my good. No matter what happens this week, next week, this year, next year. I am his and he is mine. And if that matters to you, you will express it. I close with this final quote from Bob Coughlin. If I had no other choices, I'd rather be sitting in the midst of a quiet congregation singing rich truths than jumping around with a lively congregation belting out shallow man-centered songs. But God never intended for us to have to choose. 
We're to pursue theological depth and passionate expression. At the end of the day, no one physical expression will ever be adequate to fully express our amazement that God would graciously draw us to himself through the Savior. Our response will look different at different times in different churches and different cultures, but there's no question that we must understand that God is worthy of our deepest, strongest, and purest affections, and our bodies should show it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word to think about the internal reality and external experience that is to categorize our worship. God, we confess that we are, we are, we are called by your, by your word to grow as worshipers. One of our mission, uh, part of our mission as a church is that we would grow in worship. And so we pray that you would help us as we move forward in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead to grow as worshipers, both in the internal reality of our worship and our external expressiveness to you. And we pray that the two would ever be joined together so that one would not be a mask for the other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.